What's up? We are live at Elk Shape Camp in Colorado. Uh, today we have a panel. We're going to do a live Q&A. Um, it's probably going to drop on Snyder's cast. Uh, we got Frank the Tank down there. What's up, Frank? We have Jeff Bynum from Idaho, Aaron Snyder, Dirk Durham, and myself. Oh, hey there. Hey. Aaron's eating right now, and so when he's done and refueled, he can take over the hosting job. So, guys, I panicked. I panicked. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a pile of your guys' questions here, but let's go live Q&A first, and uh, we'll just do like old school third grade, raise your hand, we'll call on you, you can say your question as loud as possible, we'll repeat the question for the listeners at home, and then we'll get uh, whoever wants to tackle it or everyone's take. Sound good? Okay, who's got the first question? My man. You mentioned a final approach pack. Uh, what items do you actually utilize within your final approach pack? Gotcha. So the, the question there was um, a final approach pack. Uh, what, what contents are in that final approach pack? Uh, that, it generally depends uh, on the weather, but for the most part, I always have MSR Aqua Tabs or Aquamera, basically a way to, to purify water. Uh, a Nalgene bottle pocket. Um, like I said, the, the, the small dry bag in an if I'm truly trying to save weight, some type of food, Copenhagen, my tags, a knife, a compass or GPS, or, or depending on, I, sometimes I'll, this is a Phoenix 6 watch or I'll have a Garmin 601 watch. Uh, and then the only other thing is potentially if, if rain is on the horizon, rain gear, uh, or a puffy jacket if it's super cold, that is generally about the only thing I take, and, and if I can get less than that, I'll, I'll put less than that in it. I actually packed my mule deer out with that pack last year to my big pack, and I just carried two small game bags in my hands, and just, it was 48 pounds that will hold a deboned meat, but. Next question, anyone? Gotcha. There was a couple questions there. I think the first one you asked as far as the optics, were you asking what one optic would be yeah, best? So if you were going uh, so to take, the question was, if you were going to take one optic, what optic would that be? What power? 10 by 42 or 10 by 50 would be the, what I would say. And I'd say we should probably all answer that, Frank. Yeah, I'm, I run 10 by 42s all the time. I hardly ever use binoculars, but if I did, it'd be a 10 by 42, 10 by 50. Yeah, I would say 10 by 42s for places that allow binoculars. And then if you hunt North Idaho, no binos. So, yeah, I think that's something maybe we should touch on a little bit, maybe a little bit more, because I, I have talked to people about certain elk areas and I don't bring binoculars and they think I'm crazy. And then I'll, I'll bring up some of the more well-known elk hunters that don't bring binoculars. If you're hunting above tree line early season, um, vast difference, probably going to need binoculars. You're hunting in more dog hair thick timber you probably aren't i would say binoculars in some cases are more of a distraction especially cold calling because you're moving more than you should be glassing when you should be really staying still but what dirk what are your thoughts on that yeah so even you know a lot of guys say well in big timber you should have binoculars that way you can pick out an ear a flicker of an ear or whatever but that's not that's not my mode of operation when i'm archery elk hunting um, usually on the go. If I'm if I'm stopped for very long, I'm calling. I'm listening. Um, I'm listening to every little sound, a, a, a branch popping um, or you know brush rustling. But a lot of that you can't you can't really see a long ways. 
and there hasn't been too many times where I've had a bull just kind of pick me off. Bulls will kind of come in, you know, they might come in slow, but um, if I'm doing my job standing motionless, then I'll usually see them before they see me. Now, if I'm doing this, like Aaron said, if I'm raising my, my binoculars up and down, I'm creating a ton of movement and they'll pick you off early on that. So, um, but yeah, if you were going to hunt tree above tree line or let's say Hell's Canyon of Idaho, where you can glass for miles and miles, yeah, you definitely want to have binoculars. But, um, I think when I came to Colorado, I brought my bino, my binoculars had my bino case and I ended up putting my lunch in my, in my case, uh, cause I didn't really need the binos. And then his question was about spotters too, a little bit. Like I only bring a spotter elk hunting if I'm wanting to get phone scope footage of elk. Like I can glass up a bull, see his frame and be like, cool. I'm not going to be like, oh, he's 317. I'm out. You know, that's not me, but I'll bring a spotter if I'm going to, if I'm going to get good footage, I'm going to go to Wyoming this year. I'm going to bring a spotter. I'm going to get some great footage. But other than that, I don't pack a spotter for elk. Do you guys pack spotters for elk? No. If uh, we're hunting um, super early in the high country, especially if we have a mule deer tag, but early season high country here when they're still in their summer feeding patterns, if you were trophy hunting, maybe you could bring one. Uh, when I say trophy hunting, meaning you're counting main beams and G1s and 2s. For the most part, I think a lot of people get spotters for no reason, whether whatever the animal would be, because they're generally going to shoot the first thing that comes in front of them. But everybody has a spotter, so it's kind of the cool thing to do, where in a lot of cases, a good set of 10 by 42s on a tripod are far better than a shitty tripod and a shitty spotter. Um, so as far as your aluminum and carbon tripod thing, and for me, about the only good aluminum tripod is an outdoorsman. Um, as far as uh, the, is it work, you know, is it, is it, needed to get a carbon tripod. Um, if you start looking in the carbon tripod market, uh, you can go, what was that really right stuff was a grand? Really right stuff was a grand without the tripod head. The head was probably four or 500 bucks. That's probably the, the highest quality, most stable tripod. Um, a, a good aluminum tripod is gonna be more stable than a, a bad carbon tripod. Carbon tripod is gonna be a lighter weight. Carbon will snap in cold weather. You know, you ding a carbon tripod, you're gonna break it. Um, I'd probably rearrange your question and just say, how much money do you want to spend? Start with the budget and go from there. Cause if you said you had a couple hundred bucks, you don't have a choice anyway. You're sound like a dick. You're getting a piece of shit. I mean, that carbon tripod, carbon tripods are expensive for good ones. But if you're talking four five, six, seven hundred 700 bucks for a tripod, then you're starting to really weigh out what you want. You want durability. You want to lose a little weight. What's more durable. Do you want to stand? Do you want to sit? And then in that question, it's not that easily answered. What's your budget on the tripod, I'd say, would be the, the biggest one. What is your budget? Well, I have one, an aluminum one. I think it was like 400 bucks. Who makes it? Um, Monfrotto? Yeah. Yeah, so heavy as shit. It's, yeah, that's what yeah. I mean, it felt heavy to me, but I don't know if that was typical or not. Oh, no, that, that $400. You can stand it all the way up. Yeah, that's like. And it has a fluid head on it, too. Yeah, I think that's six pounds, five and a half pounds. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I would get a lighter weight trap. You know what that'd be good for? Alberta, Eastern Colorado, hunting out of the truck. I wouldn't want to pack that thing anywhere. If it's a one of the a little bit older, really high quality Monfrotos, you could beat a grizzly bear to death with it, but I would not want to pack that thing in. They're just, they're heavy. As far as archery goes, how often are you guys shooting in the off season? And then kind of what's your checkpoint going into the field? distance, group size, you know, outside of the, the you know, shooting 
Cradwell, but where are you guys trying to, where you know where you're, you're feeling good, you're on, and you're heading in the woods? We'll start with Frank and we'll go over there. Um, I like to try to shoot every day during the summer, but I do other stuff uh, throughout the year, coyote hunting, mountain biking, snowboarding. So I would say right around when summer starts, I try to shoot daily, um, keep it in the insert at 60, 70 yards, and try to shoot as far as I can. I think you can get probably 100 yards at my local range. So I don't like shooting at game probably beyond 50, 60 yards, but being confident at longer distances is kind of where I go. Um, I, I shoot year round with with the stick bow and the compound. I'll just answer for both because people are going to listen to this shoot a stick bow. With the compound, I wanted to be basically in a Reinhardt at 18 and 1 at 120 um, in that green circle in that 18 and 1 at 100. And, and when I say inside, on average inside that green circle and at 80, inside that green circle every time, all the time, no matter if it's a good day or bad day. Um, I shoot every day you know, year, year round. So it's a little bit different. I don't know. I don't have the, the, the extra Frank hunts predators. I hate getting cold, so I don't have predators. So I just shoot indoors and practice. I, I would say though, that, you know, most people, I, I would say, you know, six inch group at 50, if they can keep it in there, eight inch group at 50 that they, um, you know, ready to go with a con with a, with a recurve inside of a paper plate at 40 yards is, is kind of where I'm trying to stay or, or tighter. So, and I shoot the stick more than I've ever shot any other bow because it's a pain in the ass, but go ahead. <laughs> so <clears throat> being from North Idaho, I'd always kind of wait till the snow melted. I might, throughout the winter, I'd kind of take some pot shots inside my shop, um, but not a, a dedicated shooting re regime. Um, I did do some uh, winter uh, shooting leagues, indoor shooting leagues. That was awesome. That helped out a lot. And just, you know, I'm kind of a recluse sometimes, so I don't really get to get out and talk to people and that was nice to, you know for camaraderie and just kind of see people and visit and shoot bows in a, in a pretty loose atmosphere and that was really great but uh typically um as soon as the snow melts in my yard um that's april may i start shooting in june i, I start shooting every single day um, and a lot of times i'll just walk out and start at like 70 and 60 and shoot from there and then dial it as i start getting fatigued I start working my way up to the target to where once my arms are getting kind of tired and it's like, well, I'm probably going to make a bad, you know, make a less good shot. I'm going to be at 20 yards at that point. So, um, or if I start making a fatigued shot and I start doing some bad habit stuff, I just stop right there, call it for the day and then start over. But uh, moving to Southern Idaho, I'm going to have a lot more sunny days, um, a lot more different archery range options. So I'll probably shoot a little bit more year round now. Uh, I shoot pretty much every day. Uh, I built a range at my house. I want it to be super convenient to shoot. Uh, I feel like if it's convenient, I'll do it, and I do it because I haven't killed an elk in 2020. I feel like the slate's wiped clean, so I got to shoot every day. Now, I will tell you this, though. I don't shoot that much during hunting season, and I hunt a lot. So there's a lot of seasonality. So leading up to spring bear, I shot so much every day, two sessions, whatever. During the spring bear, I, I mean, I'm not home that much, so I don't get to shoot that much because I'm hunting. Same with elk season, same with mule deer and whitetail season. So there's a lot of seasonality where I'm only getting a few shots a day, maybe, and that's because I'm hunting. Uh, so I think that's super important. And as far as like effective range, like whatever Aaron said, 
take like his 120, bring that to like 80, 90 for me. Like what he wants to do at 120, I want to do at 90. And what he wants to do on an 18 and one at 80, I want to be able to do like at a 60 or 70. You know what I mean? And you just got to know, you got to be honest with yourself. And that's just the truth. So yeah, good question. So whatever concerning the betting pressure on public ground without- I don't think um, you're not going to out fitness anyone in this day and age because of dumb shits like us talking about backpack hunting. I don't think you, I, you're not going to out fitness anyone. I, I and I'm not saying that you're not fit enough. You can't go far enough. Um, now you can go long enough. Like you may outlast them, but I would say fitness, honey holes and knowledge is about, this is my own personal opinion. If you go in there with one, um, we work construction, we would say you can have quality, quantity, cost efficiency. You can have any two of those you want. You go in with, you know, let's say, um, you know, fitness and knowledge, and, and but, but you don't know how to, when I say knowledge, you know, let's say you go in with, with fitness and you go in with um, field craft, but you don't know animal behavior, you're, you're fucked. You need to have all three to be successful. Otherwise, you may, you may be more fit than, than, than Dirk, um, but if he knows animal behavior, he'll destroy you. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that when I say destroy you, meaning he's going to kill shit way before you do. And so I think you have to have all three in the society today to be successful on public land. You have to have a pretty good, all of them. Cause I don't, we were as far as you could go in Colorado and I had 13 elk hunters around me and we were at 12, nine. Yeah. 12,900 feet hunting mule deer. And there was fucking elk hunters everywhere. And I was like, how the hell are you even going to get it out? Right. I mean, that's how far we were in. And that's coming from two dudes that train year round and that live here. There's guys from Texas, New Mexico, you know, Iowa, everywhere. And they were as far in as you could possibly go before you start coming out the other side and they were hunting elk. So I would say don't, I'd say rely on fitness, but also, you know, total package. But what do you think? Yeah, that's a pretty good point. Um, I will say that um, maybe kind of doing some of the stuff other people aren't doing so let's say all those guys are hiking in on the trails uh, trail system then maybe they're not bivouacking just right across country you know um, find those secluded pockets to get to if you have to hike up over the backs of a giant ridge to get to it into a secluded basin or something i think that would probably be the way i'd go um, where i live in north idaho lots of people lots of roads you kind of got to outsmart the other guy as far as i'm going to get up earlier in the morning I'm going, to be at, I'm going to be at the spot I want to bugle from before them, hours before them, and then just have that be ahead of the game a lot quicker than them. Um, yeah, and it's funny because I was just talking about this to somebody else. Ten years ago, there was a place in Idaho, North Idaho, people would be like, you know, it wasn't a long ways, you know, maybe a mile or two, or you could, you could hear a bull's bugle down in this old shithole, or if um, you could see him over on a on a glade somewhere. 10 years ago, people have said, there ain't no way in hell I'm going there. Nowadays, there's already rigs parked there and there's no bulls bugling because they're already down in there. So it, it's kind of tough. I think you gotta, gotta, like you said, hunt smarter, you know, animal behavior, animal behavior, have your research done well in advance to know where to go. Let's say you hike in there and you got 13 elk hunters there punching you in the face. Maybe there's another spot you need to go, you know, somewhere close there or just pull out and go to another place. I don't know. We just talked about this on a, on a podcast and, and what Dirk said is correct. The thing is, is 
elk um, in September, they need to eat, they need to have sex, they need to, to sleep, right? They need to drink. If you can figure out the place they would do that away from all the people, you're probably going to kill an elk. That sounds super simple, but it is simple. Um, if you look in that two-mile buffer of, of day hunters and then that two to four of backpack hunters, you don't really want to go five to seven because you're probably not going to get the elk out. But what you can find in that one to two or that first two miles is pockets from that two to four to five mile. There's pockets. Those pockets are usually shittier to get to. But if you look into a canyon, no one else is going to go to. That's your pocket. That pocket may not be beside the road like it used to be. That pocket may now be a mile and three quarters in and then you got to drop into the canyon. The other thing, too, that I think is highly overlooked is once you get an elk in front of you, um, sorry for my analogy here. When you walk in to hit on a bar, into a bar to hit on a chick, if you walk in and say, hey, sleep with me. She's, well, that's how people blow on that estrus call a lot of times. You know, yeah, they hear a cow call and then all of a sudden they're blowing that estrus call. It's like crazy ex-girlfriend, right? They're like, Jesus, you're not going to sleep with that chick. She's crazy as shit. You got to learn to call, right? You got to learn what noise to make and when. And in the case of these guys, just talking, I've never hunted with Dirk, but the bugling thing, there's going to be a certain call or a certain response, I'm guessing, so that they get, that they know that elk is probably theirs. Learning those specific calls, what they make, that's all huge because just because you found elk, you're probably going to scare the shit out of them the first few times because you don't know what you're doing. And, and in case of Frank, Frank will just sneak in and shoot them. He's not going to call. Frank, I mean, you don't call very much anyway. Frank just sneaks in and kills them. The problem is, is Frank is smart. Not the problem. The good thing with Frank is he's smart enough to know his limitations of calling. Where everybody's watched too many Primos videos and they're all hunting on a private ranch and they think you squeeze a coochie mama and they come running. They don't do that shit. Um, you want to ad lib on that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. So you got to learn to be smart. And that may be mild calf calls and cow calls just to let them know you're there and shut up and wait and hope that they come because as fun as it is to scream on that bugle, if you sound like a Sasquatch, you may be, or if you blow too aggressive. So <laughs> calling smarter and finding those pockets or, and I'm not killing giant bulls every year, but I, I generally, when I hunt them, I kill a bull every year. That may be a five by five, that may be a giant bull, but we don't blow the elk out that are in front of us. I'd say the other big problem is don't hunt all day. Um, especially in Colorado, uh, specific spots, because all you're doing is scaring the shit out of everything. Once those winds change and the thermals change, it may seem like, well, I just drove 16 hours. I need to put the most into it I can. You don't need to put the most into it. You need to put the smartest, most intelligent um, you know, uh, amount of effort into it. And if you're hunting all day and the winds are swirling, you're pretty much assuring yourself whatever elk you had for that morning or that night will not be there and th now that that's my own personal experience do you guys want to add to that or yeah um <clears throat> i think so i like to hunt all day a lot but but there, there's a big but there uh we're gonna wait in the wings if if the wet the wind isn't right we're waiting in the wings until it is right let's say we know they're over there the wind squirrely as can be we're not going to go in we're going to wait until it that. is that don't walk around all day sorry. right right <laughs> right if you got a if you got the herd bedded down in a, in a certain spot and the w winds are squirrely yeah you don't want to just go in there and take a chance uh, maybe it's best to wait till the thermals change in the evening get a good good strong downhill wind and then go and if you're waiting in the wings just far enough out of uh, getting detected it's a quick hike in there 
and to capitalize them right there as soon as they start moving around once the once the thermals change so I, I'm glad you said that because that that is important when I say hunt all day you're always hunting all day for elk be smart about it don't walk all day and, and I made jokes on a, on a podcast at once about the Forrest Gump the long walker the guy that just walks all day because he's putting the most effort in as he can the the, the last bull that um, um, the, the Grady gunman killed that was an all-day hunt we, we were on the herd and we, we hung in the wing. We knew the wind was bad. I, I have these uh, wind floater checkers. It's like milkweed. I was dropping those off, watching in my binoculars, knowing what the wind did on the way down to where at least we weren't blowing them out. When we sat there and, and one of those elk got riled up and he bugled his way and walked right to us. He, he did it for us. We would have repositioned if the wind uh, you know, called for that, but he literally committed suicide. Like we were actually tracking another bull Brian had wounded and I laid up because I was out of water. I'm like, dude, you low brisket hit it. Let's just chill for a bit. We waited. We knew that other herd was there. And I'm like, that herd's in there. We might as well, we've hiked this far. Wait on that herd tonight when the wind, the thermals get, because you want to check the winds and the thermals. They're, they're both different, right? The wind can blow one way, thermals can blow another, especially in the high country. Well, that bull just woke up out of his bed. We heard a lazy bugle. Something pissed him off. He got up. Scream 400 yards away, scream 250. I'm like, dude, get your fucking bow, dude. He's coming to get our Snickers. He's coming. He was 75 yards from us inside of two minutes. But we were on the, the wings like you were talking about. So I, I should have prefaced that. Don't, don't walk all day because you surely will probably blow them out if you're walking all day. That was a really, that's probably the most important question I think that could be asked. Because hunting pressure, you guys are going to see that happen this year, right? Um, especially in this state of Colorado. So... Aaron just said something. I don't know if you caught it. I want to revisit that. He's talking about an evening hunt and the thermals changing. I don't know how many of you are willing to admit, but some of you here are afraid of the dark. Some of you do not like hiking out all the way back to your spike camp or your truck because you're afraid of the dark and you squander that 17, 20 minutes every day. Add that shit up over a week hunt. I've killed more elk in the last 20 minutes of daylight because I don't care. That's going to take me three hours to get back to my truck. I will sleep in October. You guys need to take advantage of the last 20 minutes. So let's just go down the line of things you can do that others are not willing to do. Yeah, you said wake up early. I say stay up late. I say stay and hunt till dark and then go find another herd. Go bugle ridges for the next two or three hours, which doesn't make sense because you're tired and hungry and you want to go to bed. And go locate the next herd so you have a backup plan. Land features, like terrain features, cross a river that people aren't going to cross to get to elk or get away from trailheads. But Aaron just said something right there. They're hunting until dark, dark, and they're not hiking their way out. We'll hunt our way out. Stay with the elk all the way until dark, and then, you, then you're done or you're not. You're going to go locate more. So I think that's just something that I, I do personally every year. Absolutely. Nope, that's not me. I do not. I despise bivy hunting. That's not for me, and I'm just not into it. I'll add to the bivy hunting thing, and and uh, Frank hunts enough in the mountain. I don't know you that well, or I'd ask you more questions. If you're bivy hunting, you have fucked up because you have a bad plan. Now, I'm not saying there isn't times you you may have to bivy hunt a little, but bivy hunting to me, true bivy hunting, is you're hunting all day with what's on your back. That's bivy hunting. And if you, that means you went in with zero plan, you have no idea where the elk are, which from coming from out of state can, can happen, but let's face it, we have the most technology we've ever had in our lives. You gotta have at least a plan. And so 
Um, I don't know about you, but you know, from a military background, there are times like, let's say doing artillery simulators, you had so much kit on and I'm thinking if this was true combat, I just say, fucking shoot me. I got 65 pounds of shit. I'm diving on the ground, trying to run. You do that for five or 600 yards, you're combat ineffective. It's the same way bivy hunting, 45 pounds, you're not agile, you can't move, you're making bad decisions because of lactic acid, but your brain does not work correctly when your heart rate gets so high and lactic acid starts building up in your muscles. You're not making smart choices. So if you are truly bivy hunting, unless you just enjoy bivy hunting, which I don't know who the hell would enjoy bivy hunting, you're probably, I've made some mistakes in your, your choices before you've headed into the woods. Have you ever tried it? I have. Yeah, I, like I hated it. Yeah, I didn't like it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was convenient to yeah, be able to, to, to build up, to build <laughs> which one? The Colorado, you did a sweet bivy style hunt in Colorado, 13 miles, something crazy, 50 pounds on your back. And then you came back to the truck to get food and you guys almost killed an elk half a mile from the truck. Yeah, we spent five days bivy hunting. Went up over the mountain, zigzagged all over uh, God's green earth for five days. We got into bulls, got back to the truck, switched partners, went back out. We were we could hear four wheelers running up and down the road, called in a bull. Yeah, a shoulder blade should have got it, but um, yeah, I just didn't like it. You know, that forty five pounds on your back, it's like you put it on at home. You're like, yeah, this ain't bad. Yeah. But you start going over windfalls and you start it. 8,000 feet, 10,000 feet, and you climb up over 12,000 feet or whatever, that sucks. And like you said, you're not very agile. You get a bull bull going and you need to move and you need to move up on him quick. There's no moving up on him quick. After or, or quiet. Or quietly after you've humped it up the mountain all day and now it's go time. And I feel like if, if you're kind of like, you know, some people say um, you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone. But I feel like if, if you've pushed yourself too far out of your comfort zone, that's when you make those mistakes. Um, you, you make the, the wrong moves at the wrong times. Maybe you just, you're, you're exhausted. You can't make that shot. You blow a, an easy shot. You just do the wrong things. So yeah, I, I think a spike camp would be way better, you know, pack it in, unload it, and then kind of hunt from there. But, now we, we move spike camps. And I think that's very effective. We'll, we'll move around and, um, when I say that, meaning plot it out, right? Meaning pick your battles, pick your pockets, pick where you think elk are gonna be, hunted a day or two, pick up your camp, move to the next camp and get that camp off your back. Hunt that area for a couple days. Usually six days is about the most effective. Most people are gonna be five to six days. Then you're gonna to need to go back, you know, refit or refuel, um, you know, maybe even run into town, grab a cheeseburger, whatever is gonna make you, you know, motivated and then go back in. When you try to do more than five to six days, I think you're probably more, it, mule deer's a little bit different and cheap, but you're more ineffective from five to 10 than you would be effective if you didn't come out, grab more food, you know, you're out of food, so your pack's lighter, grab more food and go back in rather than packing 10 days worth of crap in at one time. It's just difficult. Most people aren't capable of doing it. And that's the same kind of concept as the bivy hunting thing. Moving a spike camp from spot to spot, I don't think it's a horrible idea, but back in, I don't know, Frank, have you ever bivy hunted? Yeah, was it effective? No. Yeah. <laughs> and these are the things I talked about, wisdom and knowledge. You're gonna get all the knowledge in the world online you want. The wisdom part is where you're gonna get out there and be like, whatever dude I listened to was full of shit, this is horrible. And that's, bivy hunting is what I found is probably some of the worst advice 
you could take from someone, unless you just want to go experience pain for five to seven days, then by all means, head out there. Yeah, I would, I would add to that. Know your limitations. Um, I've gotten smoked here in Colorado a few times, and I mean, I, I'm not as near as experienced a hunter as these guys, but I've been doing it a long time, and I jumped on the fat of bivy hunting, and we were going to go eight days, and we got five or six days into that, and a couple guys in camp gave up, thankfully, because I think I was going to give up on day seven. Um, but it's it's an easy way to ruin a good hunt, um, and, and so I'm, I'm much more of a set up a base camp, spike out type of guy. You see a lot more injuries in bivy hunting, but I don't think they're true. They're fake injuries because they're like, oh, I, my knee's I bad. Back. Yeah, we need to go back. And that's where. mountain house injuries on that trip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, knowing your limitations is a big one. And, and my favorite is I like to, I like to base camp. Um, I don't hunt a lot of deep wilderness country normally. Uh, like if I'm hunting Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, I'm not, I'm not backpacking into the, into the wilderness. Um, I'll have a base camp. And then I have plan A through Z. So we go up one giant drainage, hunt that thing out one day, at, walk out two hours in the dark, we're done. We've cleared that spot. On to the next one, on to the next one, on to the next one. Oh, we got into elk over here, but we didn't kill one. Give it a couple days, we come back. After it's rested a couple days, go back in. But not only are you ruling out country that has elk, doesn't have elk, you've, all, you've also found some elk too. And it's usually pretty successful. Um, but like that bivy hunting, if we were to bivy hunt at the first spot, you'd go up there and beat around for a while, stay the night and hunt around a little bit more and then come out. You've now you've dedicated two days to that spot where effectively with a little, with a lot of boot leather, you can hike in, hunt it and hike out the same day and go to a different spot if it sucked. If you're going in five days, spend, spend that time to find the animal and, and focus on the archery component leading into season. Yeah, some of that, but I mean, honestly, the archery component you can fit in in smaller times. I'd say focus on the hunt, put more time into hunting. I wouldn't take time off for shooting ASA tournaments or anything like that, you know, and you can focus after work. Generally, obviously, if you get a ton of kids or whatever, a little different, but, you know, as far as straight up time off. So if you have a weekend to, to scout, let's say, and it makes sense to go in there and maybe branch out from that specific area a little bit. I think that's a good idea. As far as taking time off, like days off, I would put that all into hunting. Even if you're scouting a little while you're hunting, at least you can actually shoot something while you're scouting, where when you're you know, scouting, scouting during season, scouting with a weapon in your hand, in comparison to you know, once you know the area, taking time off to scout more when you can't shoot something. A couple different answers. One would be if you're dropping off food to lower your pack weight on the way in. Yeah, I'd say go in there and drop off some food early. That makes you more efficient while you're there and you're not taking time off of work. Uh, but for the most part, it never hurts. I don't think to go in the woods and you lose animal behavior. Probably what can happen, and I just ran into this with a guy with a sheep tag. He's scouting so much, there won't be a fucking sheep left on the mountain because he's scouted the sheep out of the areas. Like you cannot pressure areas too much. And this includes hikers, right? Hikers, there's a specific area I hunt, four wheelers, hikers, just where the elk used to be, where we used to hunt them, they're gone. Now elk will generally, bulls will be in the same spot every year until their ecosystem or something has changed that and they find a new place to be in every year. So if you found a spot that has good, and I'll be interested to hear these guys you know, response to this, if you found a spot that's good, don't go in there. If you know it hasn't been pressured, they're still there. 
I, I wouldn't go back in there personally if you know they're there because you have a chance of blowing them out um, unless you got to drop food off or something. Now, if that spot's mm, starting to get blown out, I would start scouting in those perimeter areas because those big bulls are going to find another spot if they're getting pressured out of that one area. And in Colorado, I've seen units and change entirely because where we used to shoot them off the road, talk about going in a mile in and out. They're not, in fact, they took away tags out of a specific unit that we hunted. You could road hunt it. Efficient. I mean, you could shoot 350 bulls off the road. Well, because of the data that the DOW was getting back from the normal hunters, they were saying the population was down. Even though the head count when they're doing flyovers and on foot were the same, those elk had moved into the wilderness and moved far. Well, they took away tags uh, from that unit. They took them away as much to get those elk back out of the wilderness to come down. This is obviously quite broader than the question you asked. If people would have stayed out of the woods, those elk would still be there. And it was a matter of guys scouting, guys shed hunting, four wheelers, people fucking around. And those elk, like the big bulls you find every year, they moved four miles into the wilderness, three miles to get away from that pressure. So it's kind of a weird question. And so in my opinion, if you don't, you can keep away from pressure in your area don't go in there and because you're you're better off in the long run but what do you guys think yeah so charlie asked a question should you spend more time shooting your weapon doping your weapon than taking time off to scout right up to the season aaron's answer dropping food off pretty good answer that i didn't think of that but i've done that before that's good just make sure you get it somewhere where bears can't get to i've had bear black bears find my food sucks um I'll have these guys answer. I would say that I, if I'm hunting Idaho, North Idaho is like my home turf. I don't go into those places till I hunt them. And when I hunt them, I only go in, I'm like saving them. Like this day I'm going into this drainage and I probably won't be back for, to that drainage the rest of the season or maybe a week later. I rarely hunt the same drainage twice. And I sure as shit ain't going to go in there and scout. I don't care. I'll find them when they're bugling. Um, but other states... They're too far away from me, so I rely on internet technology to scout from afar and go shoot. So, yeah. Yeah, so what I do in Idaho, um, a lot of the stuff I, I hunt, I can't get there till after the July 1st or July 4th because there's too much snow. Um, I'll go in, set trail cameras. Um, maybe I'll, I'll let trail cameras soak all year. I'll go collect my cards, put new batteries, new cards in and then walk away. I might go re revisit the place one more time before elk season opens, maybe not. Uh, some of them are pretty hard to get to. So then I won't check them again until I'm actually hunting. And then I kind of look and see and like, oh, you know, I'm, and more than anything, I'm not trying to be like, I want to shoot that, the spider bull or the special bull. I'm just- The fire bull? That's 10 burpees, We've, 10 burpees for any time you say that word. <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> um, but what I'm trying to do is trying to assess how many elk are in this place. What kind of elk are here? It, it's such nasty, thick country. Some of it you would say there's there's no elk here. There's no sign of elk here. But what I found on the trail cams will kind of tell a little different story sometimes. So, but I'm not in there every weekend checking them and, and you know, puttering around trails and beat feet down in through the stuff. Um, now, as far as like shooting leading up to season, yeah, I'd shoot a lot. But maybe the last couple of weeks, I might even taper off because now, if like right before your hunt, let's say you, you're you have something go wrong with your string, something go wrong with your bow rig. Now you're going back to the pro shop, you're redialing your bow in, 
right before the hunt. Um, and you may not want to do that. I'd, I'd add um, to that North Idaho, which I've hunted a good bit compared to Colorado, is, is totally different, right? We, Colorado's got summer feeding patterns are at 13,000 feet. I think scouting in the summer above 13,000 feet can be very effective from a distance because you're going to see the entire herd and everything it has to offer. And once you learn elk habitat, you know, like you say, that, that spot you're going to that is effective, you're going to be finding the elk a distance away from where they're going to end up being, but you're going to be able to see you already know where they're going. You already know your spot. If you're trying to figure out what kind of bulls you might be running into, do that above tree line. Not every spot in Colorado is like that, but, but most are. You're gonna be able to find that from summer feeding patterns. You're getting in shape, you're testing gear. You know, that's all, all, all good. Um, when I talk about the shooting thing, I think that's not just as blueprinted like as we're talking about, because that's a great question. I think that people's, some people's innate nature is just to not shoot. And no matter what they do, they're just not going to shoot that well. They may have the most dynamic arrow bow set up in the world. They're just not putting their time into shooting. And I don't think anything they do is probably going to change that. They're just not going to, to do it. And, and what Dirk brought up is, I think, is a very good sound advice talking about strings wearing out. If your strings kind of wearing out in June, change it in June because you're going to need to definitely change it before season. But putting the bow down a week before season, I don't think is a horrible idea or shooting one shot a day that one killer shot and that shot being from 20 to your effective range 50 yards and making sure that target I have this little bastard two and a half foot bear that's my one shot that's the one if I've got to go to work and I'm not gonna be able to shoot that day when I walk out of the garage it's a four this is with a recurve it's a 40 yard cold bore shot if I can hit that fucking little bear I should be okay to you know cold bore hit an animal and, and also you're letting your body recover it's actually quite amazing if you don't shoot for a week it's no different. The highest I've ever bench pressed was after taking two weeks off, letting my body recover. Shooting's no different. So as you start working on back tension on a recurve and you're prone through a clicker, you're learning your draw length will gain on a back, uh, in a recurve and a compound cross-pollinate somewhat that your draw length actually is lengthening after a week off because you have all that powder in the, in, in the, packed in the casing you are able to be more effective shooting. Now there's a diminishing return there. You don't want to take too much time off. Same thing with a compound bow. If you've lifted, maxed out, shot too much, the opening day of season, you got to stay at full draw for two minutes. You're going to wish you probably had a little bit of time off, which is way off the subject of what we're talking about. But. <laughs> yeah, Charles, I'll jump in. Um, sounds like you found some elk. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of in that same place in North Idaho. I've been up there a couple years now and I've got probably half a dozen maybe eight different herds of elk located in different drainages this year i'm running the trail cameras i'll go in twice i'll set a trail cam make sure i have good lithium batteries big memory cards uh run a trail camera and then i'll pick it up probably two weeks before season um, but other than that i'm staying out of there not going in any of that stuff so the the question was as far as traveling out of state or into alaska yukon northwest territories where's a good place to start budget um I've been fortunate enough, not so much in Alaska, but the Yukon and BC Northwest Territories to work up there quite a bit um, and help out its budget. Um, I, I hate to say it, but I, I'm sure we've all ran into guys, you go to their trophy room and it makes your, your wiener just shrink because you're like, Jesus, I'm a horrible hunter. In reality, that guy, not all of them, some of them are great hunters. They've hired ding-dongs like, you know, me or other, you know, us or, or him to call or whatever to guide them in. I don't know if you'd agree with this, but 
they're paying for the animal in, in a lot of different ways. Not to say they're not putting boots on the ground, but uh, you go to the NWT um, in some of those areas, you're getting flown into a helicopter a mile from the animals. Is that your thing, not your thing, or whatever Alaska you're backpacking in, but you're paying a dude to take you from A, you're paying for a service. And the more money you pay for that service, the better hunts you're gonna get. And so you're gonna have to weigh out what you can afford, what kind of experience you want, um, and go from there. And this is when you're talking about moose, caribou, brown bear, grizzly, doll sheep, stone sheep. Uh, I mean, what would you guess a, an average cost of a doll sheep is right now? Uh, 15 to 20 probably. 20 plus. Um, if you're paying 15 grand for a doll sheep, it's a shitty one. Um, I, I can promise you that. Moose is 20 to 28,000 uh, generally. Stone sheep, you're looking at 65 grand, um, 65 grand, well, 30, not 65, 35 grand for a stone sheep plus uh, desert bighorn, you're at 65 grand plus. So it's really going to boil down for the, the service and what you want out of the, you know, the hunt and then betting your, your outfitter. That's a thing, like even Alberta, we can't hunt mule deer in Alberta. We've gotten, I've gotten crap for going on a guided hunt in Alberta. Quite honestly, they would hire Frank and I immediately to be their head guides. It's illegal, right? You can't hunt without one. And so um, vetting the outfitter, vetting the guide, making sure what you're gonna get, the caliber of animal and the type of hunt you get. If you wanna go on an ass kicking backpack hunt, you may wanna go to Alaska. If, if you want a sure thing for doll, you wanna go to the NWT with the Lancasters, you're gonna kill a sheep. There's no way around it, but you're gonna pay $28,000 to do it, plus tip, plus flight, plus airfare. It's it's expensive. I don't know how much you've messed around up there, but it was an eye opener to me as I'm pushing some fat dude up the side of the mountain that gave me a $5,000 tip that literally couldn't walk to that bale without breathing hard. Shoots a 165 inch ram. And you're like, oh, you have money. That's how you got this animal. And it really that not to poo poo on it, but not all of the hunters that go up there are like that. But truly, you're paying for a specific service on some of those animals. And and, and you need to weigh out what you want out of the, you know, out of the hunt. Um, if you, with a, it doesn't take much, a few, the big ones you're gonna know, the, 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 the Lancasters who are personal friends of mine, McKenzie Mountain Outfitters. I mean, you're gonna know Bowen and Lewis. You're gonna have heard of their name with a quick Google search. You're gonna find out if they're good or not. And at that point, really, it's gonna matter of what type of terrain you may wanna see, um, what type of hunt specific hunt you want to get as far as spending money on so if you want to shoot a brown bear for example or a doll sheep which are relatively close in price once you figure that out then you're going to figure out what kind do you want to shoot the brown bear do you want a guaranteed brown bear with archery you're going to shoot them off a of bait you're going to go with uh, jonas or somebody like that uh, if you want to go with a, a true legit brown bear hunt uh, spot and stock you're probably going to go with cole kramer or lance cronenberger something like that that's where you really got to pick it apart and it's a big decision because for most of us you know we're not you know we're not made of money um i lit i should have willy these guys were giving out tips for what we'd pay for cars um you know and, and they just have more money than what's what's normal and but they're paying for a specific animal also i mean there's some pretty big blueprinted numbers they're talking about before they even step out of the plane that they want where somebody like i would say us we want, the, we want the animal, we want the adventure, we want that lifelong experience because we probably can only afford it one time. Um, I guess that's my two cents. I don't know if you guys have any. I'll jump in on this one. Um, you know, we're going to talk about this as part of the reason I'm here at camp is most of us don't fall in that category of being able to just write a check and, 
go on a $65,000 stone sheep hunt. Um, for us, if we want to go have those types of experiences, as well as hunt elk on a consistent basis in state, out of state, we got to be financially fit. The same way we've all talked about, talked about our fitness here and our shooting technique and everything, uh, your finances have play a big part of this. And so um, we're going to dive into that tomorrow, but uh, your, your fiscal fitness side of things is going to be a big impact on whether you get to ever get to have these types of experiences. I've hunted Alaska, and I haven't been back since I've been married and I have kids. And I'm not going back until those kids are graduated. Kids are expensive. My wife's expensive. I'm expensive. So you don't, are you married? You don't look married. You need to do what I did. I was 21, just got into bow hunting, and I was like, paid a pilot, dropped me off here. I'm going to Alaska to hunt. And so I've hunted Alaska probably four or five times, five times. List the animals you can hunt off in Alaska without a guide. Yeah, so you can do black bear. Back when I went, you could go to Prince of Wales without drawing it. That was pretty sweet. Uh, caribou, Malchatna, the, the Arctic Circle. Uh, you can't hunt mountain goat. You cannot hunt brown bear. You cannot hunt the sheep or the goats. But you can hunt some things. Uh, there's some moose, but there's uh, some nuance to that. I don't want to go dive down that. But uh, another thing with rookie people wanting to travel to other states is get reps, but get good at hunting before you spend money on hunting. If you're going to like buy a landowner tag in New Mexico, make sure you've killed a few elk and you, you can take advantage of that tag. You know what I mean? I can't believe how many people save up points, draw these limited entry elk tags, and they've killed a spike one time or a cow with a rifle tag. Like, you know what I mean? So get your reps, do it before you get married. I, I, I'm going to bring up Jake Downs just because he's a, a buddy of mine that fairly normal job. He owns an, a pretty small electrical company. He just killed a brown bear and three black bear. Um, he's a great guy to talk to. He does a lot of payment plans, um, which is super smart. That's a good way to do it. Um, you, and, and he's done multiple hunts like this. The, his, uh, the, 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 the goat hunt Frank and I went on last year, he paid off that. But he's prioritized his life to, to hunt. Um, He's got a wife and, a, and, and two daughters um, that, um, huh? Is one a son? You see how good of a friend I am, right? He's got a daughter and a son. The son's new, I can't tell yet, he's little. Um, <laughs> making payments like that brown bear hunt he paid on for two and a half years. Um, so if, what do you do for work? Uh, restoration construction. See, that's perfect. Side jobs, that's a good one, right? <laughs> so anytime like, res, you know, you're doing any kind of construction, which, depending upon what you're doing, these outfitters will work with you, right? They know everybody's not made of money. I would say if you've got an eight-year plan, Dan brought up a good point, bridge that fucker up, right? Work on elk and high country mule deer, make payments on a hunt as you're getting trigger time, as you're getting experience, and make that first hunt not a gimme, but a gimme in what you want, meaning the experience and the potential to shoot, a potential to shoot an animal. And then as you're bridging it up, when you hit that, you know, how old are you now? 27. See, I didn't have my shit together until I was 40, right? So as you hit 37, you start hitting, unless you're just inherently wealthy, dull sheep, the ones that really count, especially if you're gonna go after them with a bow, um, to where you've got some real good trigger time, real good experience, and all those other, you didn't skip, you didn't just hit the easy button, not the easy button, but you've experienced, like I think if Frank had to choose, he'd hunt high country mule deer every year above almost anything. I mean, I don't. And that's free, right? Uh, and then again, I mean, you think about what you're going after, you can hunt four different states for mule deer, right? Is, is that what you wanna go after? Focus on that. And then maybe later on as you're making these payments, do some of these other, you know, other, other hunts as you, as you can do it. I, 
I don't, I was working construction, making whatever, you know, I was basically a blue collar guy. What got me, what was able for me to go on these hunts was, well, one, the amount of time I could take off. Two was my ability to, to help or be worthwhile to be in camp. And I would trade services for a hunt. And so you're in a position to do that. You get good enough, you get good enough eyes, good enough glass, good enough legs under you and a good enough schedule. You could potentially, knowing the right people, trade some of those services uh, for free. I would have never been able to afford a caribou. I traded photography and guiding services and I got to shoot a caribou. Um, you know, things like, what's that? Some HJs. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of ways to work it around, but um, once you get, um, I'm not saying your life's over once you get married, kids are awesome, but if you marry the wrong woman, your life will be over. Um, you know, situation. yeah, what's that? Different situation. Yeah, yeah. So just things to think about. Um, go ahead. Man, I don't, we've had enough people on the podcast talking about that. It, it sounds like I keep putting in to a certain amount of points, especially if they end up changing the system. But I keep, you know, putting in for a while because three is just not enough. But, I mean, you're young enough. You could, you could probably draw twice on. You could draw two more goat tags before you keep. I mean, you're fit, super fit. So I would keep putting in. Uh, specifically goat, you can draw a nanny tag in three years probably. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all what you want to, you know, get out of it. And in the luck of the draw, you can put in for a cow tag next year for moose and probably draw that. You can put in for a U tag if you want to do that and draw that fairly quickly. So I would keep trying. So you live, you don't live out west, correct? You live in the Midwest. And so are you coming to this high state? Oh, boy. Uh, get here early. Acclimate. Show up fit. Acclimate some more. Stay hydrated. I mean, dude, this state kicks my butt. Altitude kicks my butt, and I'm in pretty good shape. So uh, find, I don't know, give yourself as much time as possible. I think time is a killer for bow hunting specifically. Uh, so give yourself as much time as possible. And then ideally, and this is coming from elk shape, like I I need to be into elk every day to kill one. Like I can't have days where it's like, oh, we didn't hear him. You know what I mean? That's kind of why I said I'll stay up late to locate elk for the next day. So if I'm hunting an area get to know it really well and try to be in the elk every day, try to be here as long as possible and show up as best shape. Don't be a jerk and get yourself altitude sickness or kill yourself. Um, those are like real basic answers, but I'll make Dirk dive deeper or Aaron or Jeff. Um, I think switching your brain process, your thought process from being a rifle hunter, elk hunter to a archery elk hunter, completely like, apples and oranges right i kind of always use the analogy of elmer fudd i mean rifle hunting to me is a lot more meticulous you know you may do a lot more glassing you might do a lot more sneaking through timber whatever but but effective elk hunting you know you, you gotta you can't just sneak around the woods like i'm hunting wabbits you have to kind of break that that whole mindset to where you want to cover more ground you want to you got to find the elk you got to hear the elk depends on what kind of hunt you want. Do you want to call them in or do you want to post up on a water hole or, or do cold calling and, and not have all the adrenaline rush of just covering a lot of country trying to find a bull that will actually bugle. Um, so I, that would be the first thing is like kind of focus on, I'm, I'm okay, I gotta, I gotta break my ties to this rifle hunting, some of these techniques here and take up these new ideas and new, 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 new techniques. That's a really great starting, 
starting point. Man, there is so much information these days online on how to, how to, how to hunt elk, how to do anything really. And start your, your e-scouting, okay? And have all your plans made, okay, pick out your spot, but pick out lots of spots. So when you first, the first place you go to, you strike out, you're not completely deflated. You don't like say, oh crap, what do I do now, go home? No, I have another spot. It's like, okay, it's all right. I'll go to plan B and C and th You know, that gives you a positive attitude so you don't just throw in the towel. Podcasts, listen to podcasts. You know, you, you can listen to Aaron's podcast and learn everything there is to know about backpack elk hunting. Lots of knowledge. You're gonna have to get your own wisdom, but it'll, it'll really take down the learning curve. Of, you know, you're not taking big pots and pans and, and uh, Coleman stoves in your backpack in the backcountry, you, you know, you, you'll know what you need, you know, for your first trip. Um, just, just soak in as much knowledge as you can and then, and then do it. The biggest thing is just doing it. A lot of people just can't break, just jump in with both feet. They're like, ah, I'm not quite ready yet. I'll do it next year. I don't have enough, I don't have enough cool gear this year. I, I, I'll wait till next year. Uh, you don't need all that cool gear. I mean, you can make the hunt whatever you want with the gear that you've got. I mean, to a certain degree, of course, but um, jumping in, going and doing it and be like, oh, that was awesome. Now I know a little bit more what I need for next time, so. You're already doing part of it. You're at this camp, right? After that, if you're gonna make it into a t-shirt, it would just say, just go. And he just said it like, you're gonna fuck up a lot, you know, but if you go, you're far ahead of not going. And then you got the chance of actually shooting something, but just actually doing it, I would say, you know, some of the hunts, um, remember that big black bear I killed in North Idaho? Yeah, the one you just walked seven miles and was on the trail and you shot it? Yeah, just largest black bear I'd ever heard of getting killed in North Idaho. You know, my, my super close friend that was supposed to have everything ready, didn't have shit ready. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna do something. I'm not just gonna sit here. So he just dropped me off and I just walked. I just went. Did I have, was there any technical skill to shooting that bear? Other than the last 40 yards of when I saw it, I just got, I got lucky. I mean, I got super lucky because it was a 23 year old bear, right? And, or it, it literally, the, the tags in it, we met the dude that tagged it, he had retired 10 years earlier. Oh, really? He was, yes. that bear was so old. If I wouldn't have walked my fat ass up that road, it was a deactivated road, I would have never killed that bear. So rather than sitting at camp thinking of what I should have been doing, I just went and did something. Now, I could have walked up that road a hundred times, at least I would have gotten shape, right? I mean, I did something. so. Just going, I think, is, is, is hugely important. And you're going you're gonna to learn. I, my wife just started hunting. She goes everywhere with me. And, I mean, you talk about you're coming from the Midwest. Obviously, she has me and Frank and friends to learn from. But she's going, right? And so she's learning every time she goes. And if you throw in some common sense with going, you're going to be fine. And, and definitely, don't buy a new bow every year. God, don't tell Phil I said that. Don't buy a new pack every year. Buy a good bow. Buy a good pack. Buy good boots. And don't, unless you're inherently wealthy, buy a ton of shit, especially in Kafaru. Um, but, you know, you don't need to buy all this stuff. Like I've killed, uh, we all have a ton of stuff with crappy gear. You can't kill it. if You could have the best gear in the world, but if you're at home, you're not going to kill shit. So. I would add to that, uh, set some real expectations. I mean, don't expect to go out your first year transitioning from a rifle guided elk hunter to an archery hunter and kill a 350 bull. You know, it, I, I think getting into elk having some really close encounters uh, having some blown up stocks i think that's success for a first year archery elk hunter frank i'd say you probably like you know frank's not an inherent elk hunter he's killed elk but i would say the reason he's 
killing elk is he goes and he's very intelligent, he's very smart. He, he makes very good decisions on the stock. He doesn't do, I mean, I, you could add, I, you just don't do anything stupid. I mean, he doesn't, I, I don't even know if you call elk, do you? I'm not a very good elk caller. I probably should have taken this class, but <laughs> I think if you're, always, if, if you're always learning something when you go out, like he said, knowledge and wisdom, learn the area, learn where you've seen elk, where you've seen sign, take something away from every hunt. The one time I hunted Colorado, we got up like at 12,000 feet, and there's these uh, Mennonite dudes in Walmart camo and Walmart tents. They'd packed that crap up there, and they, they'd been there for since the beginning of the season, which had been about a week. But they were slated to stay, you know, for another week or two, and they were just up, up there happy as a lark. So, I mean, it's what you make of it. It's, it's kind of a lot of times it's mind over matter. Yes, you need, you need some pretty good quality boots, a pretty good quality pack, a good, good bow. But uh, you don't have to have every, every little gadget and every little cool thing to, to be successful. You can, you can have a lot of fun closer to the truck than further th from the truck. I mean, you just got to go. What do you guys recommend on like arrow weight real quick and then like front of center, whatever? Whatever Aaron tells me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll let Aaron feel this I don't. Or Dan. Or Dan. Yeah. I don't. It depends on your one, your body you know, how strong, what your draw length is and your, you, you know, your draw, your, your, your draw weight and length. Cause I mean, what's your He's draw 28 length? and a half, 70 pound. Uh, 29, 29, 70 pound. Yeah. So 450 plus, you know, and, and, uh, you know, a hundred and at a minimum a hundred, I don't want to get down a rabbit hole either. The whole Fox thing is yeah. funny. Like it's a, it's a bit of a joke to us. Is a heavier point weight better? Yes. But also, you know, accuracy, you know, who's, is anybody layman for the fucking leg bone, right? I mean, you don't want to hit it. So we'll work on accuracy before you, I mean, I've answered questions for guys for three weeks to get the perfect arrow build. He went out and shot and he said, Hey, I'm shooting high. Do I move my rest or my sight? That's the problem, right? That's the problem right there. So I'd say a minimum of 450 grains, you know, at your draw length and 70 pounds, I'd say that honey hole is 475 to 510, uh, about Frank's setup, you know, roughly you're going to blow through anything you want. Learn to tune your arrow to your bow. Don't tune your bow to your arrow. And if you're going to shoot, you know, what you get the mechanical uh, fixed blade debate, um, you know, where you cannot argue a fixed blade cannot fail and mechanicals can. So worst case scenario, put both in your quiver and make sure they both hit well out to 50. Um, but again, like you, you get really wrapped up in that stuff and you kind of forget the, the heart of where it's at, which is accuracy you know again animal behavior and all that learning that and actually hitting what you're aiming at now that's not to say that you know a you might catch you know go a little bit farther in that golden triangle catch maybe a little bit more meat have a little bad arrow flight let's say you hit a branch that a cut on contact head with a little bit heavier point might be better but you know general numbers 13 percent foc um you know somewhere in that 450 plus grain you know what's going to be fine how do you introduce somebody to archery hunting or hunting in general, but not tie yourself into taking them hunting? <laughs> I, it's funny because Amy was worried about me wanting her to go, and I didn't give a shit, right? I didn't care if she went or not. And, and in, initially, I was like, "Look, you're, I don't want you to suffer at the level that we're suffering." So I'd say we started off you on pretty decent hunts where she's frozen her balls off if she had any in the blind, right? But she's going on animals or on hunts. She's going to see animals. She's going to have fun. But as far as getting them into hunting and not getting them into hunting, well, I have uh, a lot of friends that, that they're, they're, they want to dive into it. They want to dive into archery. 
next thing I know, they're calling me going, hey, so when in September are we going? I'm like, whoa, time out. I just say, just learn to be a dick. That's what I do. Just say, look, I just only hunt with a certain amount of people. No, seriously, I mean, I, I only hunt with a certain amount of people. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? We're, we're not all $100 bills. We're not all going to get along. I mean, poor Frank has to deal with me all the time. But it, it's not that I would say you and I have ever fought on a hunt. Uh, at least I don't think we have. Um, Frank hunts a certain way. I hunt a certain way. Frank likes to be solo. He doesn't want me around until I need help. And he's filled a tag and he's more than helpful. But you can just say that like, look, man, I, I hunt a certain way. You know, I'm more than happy to help you in every way I can, but I just like hunting by myself. And I can't imagine they're going to have any issue with that. I, I mean, personally, finding a hunting partner is hard as far as finding a wife, right? In the case of you've got many obstacles, you, you've got to have the same moral compass. I went on a hunt with a guy and I killed a bull on a frontal shot. You would have thought I killed his dog and slept with his wife. How could you take that shot? I'm like, it's like my 13th bull on a frontal that was a huge deal. We never hunted together again because he said I was unethical or farther shots. If you're going to shoot something, one guy's moral compass may say 40. Yours might be 60. He may get super, unless it, God forbid you wound the damn thing, then you're definitely going to hell, right? So having that same moral compass, having that same, uh, fit, Frank and I are fairly close physical ability, pretty close. Frank's probably a little bit unique in the mental toughness side of things. Frank's one of the very few guys I know that can just last forever in the mountains. The same Oh, if I shoot one and you don't, splitting the meat up, right? There's a lot of things to that relationship that can just shit out quick. And that's one of the reasons I hunt with just a couple people is not to say you can't hunt with others, but I want to genuinely enjoy and be able to, and I can depend, Frank and I don't hunt together all the time, but like Frank and Jake, I can depend on Frank to help me whenever I need it. And he can depend on me, whether we hunt side by side all the time is kind of a moot point, but always having that person around and the chances of you finding that person are pretty fucking slim. And you can just explain that ahead of time. I pray I say it sound like a negative Nancy, but how many hunting trips have you gone on with somebody where you're like, that was a bad idea? Oh, yeah, a couple times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, for a long time. I mean, it, yeah, not good. First, a couple times you do it, you won't do it again, uh, for sure. You want to add anything to that? I hunt solo. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good T-shirt. I hunt solo. I don't like anyone. The end. Speaking of solo, that's what I mainly do. So I'm wondering... Other than just common sense, tips, tricks, advice, uh, when it comes to solo safety and like situational awareness, first aid, staying in touch with uh, people back, just because when you do go into the wilderness, you always do take an extra risk being by yourself. So is there anything other than just common sense, you know, measures when it comes to solo hunting? Frank, Fr Frank and I have generally almost killed ourselves a few times, but Frank? Uh, Aaron mentioned the inReach a backup plan let people know where you're at if you know as long as you trust them with your hunting area i guess but contacting your family nightly and then having a way of communicating i think is pretty huge we don't we don't hunt in grizzly country so we don't we don't carry a gun or bear spray and even when i was in north idaho i didn't carry that shit although i probably should have um I, that that's just laziness <laughs> carry something um i would say with the tourniquet make sure you need you're gonna lose your limb with a tourniquet. Make sure you put that fucker on when you actually need to put it on. Levi Morgan almost lost his leg last year because they put a tourniquet on him and they didn't need to. They didn't know what they were doing. Um, you know, you look at like Quick Clot. Quick Clot was designed for the battlefield for guys with legs that got blown off. Well, you get guys that nick their leg and it's a bad cut and they're throwing Quick Clot. It eats your fucking skin away. Like Quick Clot's like putting battery acid on your body. So actually, 
I had a friend that go, used to go on mission trips. She had this giant first aid kit. Knew nothing about anything in there except aspirin. If you're going to carry shit into the field, like sutures, right? I saw Cam stitch up his leg. Dumbest shit I've ever seen, right? Everybody's wanting to suture themselves after Cam sutures. Sutures are for beauty. They're not for zipping yourself back together, right? You're not sewing that within reason to, and I'm not a doctor, but to collapse the wound, it's to have a prettier scar. So knowing if you're going to stitch yourself up, knowing when to stitch yourself up, um, super glue goes much farther than sutures, right? Um, I've sutured two people up both times I got done. I'm like, why didn't I just use super glue? Jesus Christ, that's ugly as shit. And, and he had to go through the pain of doing it. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing. So knowing what's in your first aid kit, knowing how to use what's in your first aid kit, knowing how to, it is very important if you're going to call an SAR bird in that you actually know how to call an SAR bird in. I mean, right now, if you were on the side of a mountain, what would you tell search and rescue if you were or hurt to find you? Mainly location. Yeah, but how would you give them your location? Long lat. I mean, do you know how to read that? Sort of. So that's a no. Sorry. Um, <laughs> when you say long and lat, there is degrees, minutes, seconds, longitude, latitude, UTM, uh, military grid. And I was just giving you shit about that. If you can truly read longitude and latitude, um, when you read that long and lat to them, um, terrain association as well, uh, you give them their long and lat, you're going to need to give them uh, some TRP, target reference points on the way in, meaning I am northwest of Mount Evans, approximately 1,700 meters. You can range it, right? Um, you can shoot an azimuth. This is where I laugh at some of the people with the navigation stuff. You can shoot an azimuth to the highest point around you, know on the map where you're at, I don't know if anybody paid to the, when we were in New Mexico or Arizona and I called in on the illegals walking and the helicopter hovered above them. You can shoot an azimuth to that. If it's over 180, deduct 180. If it's under, you add. That's a back azimuth. You can get an exact pinpoint location of where you're at. This is shit how you don't die. And people skip all this. You got fucking sitcom. You got the best boots in the world. Can't read a compass. These are the things that people should learn. Where I, I do get a little bit hot and bothered over this because... Everybody's hitting the, the easy button, the Garmin site that ranges your shit for you, the, the GPS, but the batteries die. You don't know what you're doing. Learn that stuff. I would say knowledge is what will keep you alive and wisdom far more than anything else. And, and again, I mean, uh, Frank got altitude sickness, his pulmonary edema. He just toughed his way out, but he knew where he was. He knew at a limit when he was going to call in the SAR bird. You basically just figured you'd go until you couldn't go and you'd hit the beacon. Um, but he had the wherewithal to know his limits of coming out. And then he had the ability and the devices to get him there. And, and again, I've run into hikers that have had heat stroke. They have no idea what to do, you know, during that heat stroke situation, how to treat for shock. You can die from shock. You can die from heat stroke. Learning how to even treat yourself or uh, again, Havilon knives, Taito knives, probably more people have went to the emergency room from those than anything. Being conscious when you cut up your elk, not to put yourself in harm's way when you're doing that. Because let's face it, you sprain an ankle, you know, who gives a shit, take some aspirin, hike out. The ones that are important are the ones where you're going to die, like life and limb. Um, I've seen tourniquets put on people that, that literally, thank God they didn't know how to put it on correctly. They would have lost of limb for a superficial cut. Like literally, it may have been an inch deep and three inches long, but that's just like an animal. That's going to clot up. You just need to stop the bleeding. They're fucking putting a tourniquet on it. You're going to lose your arm or your leg putting a tourniquet on, and they don't know 
They read how to put a tourniquet on. They didn't read why. And so those are the things, not to go on a giant tirade, but I hate to see people get injured or, or hurt themselves and, and, and not spend the time on that stuff as much as they do on other things. So I'll shut up now. Um, I've heard one of the most important things to have when you're hunting is confidence. And I've been bow hunting seven years now and haven't killed anything. My wife's getting a little bit sick of it. You know, I spent a lot of, I spent a lot of money, spent a lot of time, and um, haven't been able to get it done. So, what are some ways that you can build your confidence when you're out on the hunt um, to, to make you successful? How many animals have you shot at? I've shot at probably four. You four fucking kick him while he's down, Dan. Hey, Damn. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> no. Are you getting shots and then just? Like losing your like maybe you need to find a target rich environment. Someone said that earlier today. Like you need to go to pay to go to Texas, and sh like do an Aaron Snyder, go on a murder spree, and just get reps. It's good at for the death. soul. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cheaper like, than and, counseling. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't think I'm too far off here. Like seriously, like no, getting I, reps in the red zone. Get a doe tag. I get an extra doe tag in Washington every year. Get it. I've never gotten tired of shooting a white-tailed doe blow, snorting at me from a tree stand. It just doesn't get old. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, when you talk about the, the spree I went on in, you know, in Texas and Oklahoma, that initially started with, with Jake and I, and we shot some stuff. And then, uh, you know, I went and they had some cold tags. So they had 30 tags for me to shoot um, on this trip. And I'm like, I'll shoot everything you put in front of me, right? It's great broadhead testing because, again, the Ashby theory and FOC. So, you know, I think I shot 70-some animals last year, right? And, and uh we also eat like four or 500 pounds of meat a year. But what I'm learning is uh, animal anatomy when I shoot at an animal. I'm learning what the animal does after I hit it. I'm learning how to control my nerves when the animal comes in. I'm learning my setup, general things that I might, you're peaking, you're dropping your bow arm, you're doing whatever, to where, um, again, in that red zone, um, I am more, maybe more efficient because of that time. In your case, do you forget to look through the peep sight and shit when the animal comes in? I mean, everybody blacks out to a certain degree. Do you even remember what happened when you shot? Yeah, so I'm not getting shot opportunities. I've probably shot at five mule deer. Never shot at an elk. Um, never, never drew back my bow. So what, ha what happened on the mule deer? Like dissect it. So my first couple of years, I'd say the first four years, I only hunted mule deer. And like my first year, I had the most shot opportunities um, since I've been hunting, I missed three bucks, um, and I didn't know what I was doing, didn't know about wind, didn't know, I, I bought a bow online, and I had arrows that were too long and stuff, I didn't know what I was doing, so, but as far as elk goes, like, my hunt last year in Utah, um, I, I went the whole last week of the hunt, and I, I just had trouble staying confident, um, out there and that's why I'm at elk shape camp. I just want to feel more confident when when I'm in the mountains I personally would just say you just need to find a better spot your spot sucks um, and, and when I say that I don't know what's in your spot, but generally I, I don't know like with you I, and, and you two um, If I'm elk hunting and I haven't gotten into elk in the first 24 to 36 hours I'm moving right. I'm 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 beating feet um, and I'm going somewhere else. You look fit enough. Uh, you know what I mean? You look fit where you can move. You may want to make, start thinking outside the box. That could be a problem. You might be going to the status quo spots where you might want to get out of those. And, and again, you don't know confidence 
you, right now your confidence isn't necessarily just hitting animals. It's finding the damn things. And so uh, I would say that you might want to focus on looking for a new area as much as anything to get some shots. Um, you know, it's, the first year is probably a mulligan, right? Like everybody sucks their first year, whether you suck at hunting or suck at shooting or suck at gear. Like Frank, I, Frank's first year, you were talking about your arrow set up and you, you bought a bow from Walmart, didn't you, or something, or arrows from Walmart? Yeah, same as, as him. You got to... I think what helped for me is, is like I said earlier, learning the area and learning where you're seeing the elk. If you're not seeing elk, I'm not a huge elk hunter, but if you're not seeing them there, then move on to another spot where you have a chance, I guess. I don't know if that helped you at all. Um, I would find a new area or find multiple new areas. Find, like he said, find A, B, C, three, D, all the way to Z, find you know multiple different options and plans and, and work on them. How many days are you hunting a year? Um, probably between 15 and 20. Yeah, that's a lot of time, you know, to, to be able to move around. Are you sticking to one spot for elk or are you moving quite a bit? I'm kind of sticking to the one spot. I've, I've done some, you know, extended on the Wasatch front. That's, you guys know I don't know that that, that counts. <laughs> that's like Mortal Kombat hunting. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you need to get used to shooting 100 yards if you hunt the Wasatch front. Everybody else does. They're winging arrows all over. Oh. Yeah, honestly, and like he just said, leave Utah, bro. Yes. I, I would start saving your pennies and your nickels and dimes. <laughs> like, no, not gonna have any Starbucks. No, I don't want any cheese on my burger. I mean, start saving your nickels and dimes and go hunt out of state somewhere. You know, better seasons, more more opportunities, at more animals. Um, definitely do that. Um, and it and it's easy for us to sit here and say that, but with the right discipline if you just put a little bit away it might take you two or three years to to save up for that non-resident hunt but it, when you do it and then you continue to hunt like you have been maybe start expanding your new areas so you've been hitting the same old areas try to become a try to become really good at e-scouting like okay i'm kind of giving up on this i'm going to find a new spot start looking all over the state these other opportunities in the meantime and then go check them out uh, you hear a lot, and I hear this from family too, it's like, yeah, well, if I could go scouting all the time, like you, you know, uh, I'd probably be, I'd probably get an elk every year too. Well, listen, I, I set up my summer scouting trips around family activities. We're going to go camping during the summer. It's, that's a given. Why don't we go camping where it's relevant to elk hunting, okay? Mama and the kids, they're going to probably want to sleep in, get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, hike the mountain, go set your trail camera, go look around, go glass at day at first light, get back to camp. I mean, familiarize yourself with the road system, whatever it is. I mean, you can you can make all those things happen and have your family be part of it so they're not resentful of you being gone all the time. And then you're le learning new areas and be like, oh man, there's I found this pocket over here. I know a guy in, in Utah that hunts in general and shoots five and six point bulls every year. Um, and I don't know that he's, He's any more fit than anybody in this room and he's not like rich or anything he just he puts a little extra time a little more effort into it and gets his whole family involved and and he and he does it so but in, but in the meantime save those nickels and dimes to where now you're getting a little better at your hunting prowess and then two or three years down the road go out of state and then you're like oh my god this is so much easier over here and wham call in a big bull and shoot it <clears throat> or a cow whatever you're looking for I'm not overly familiar with Utah, but I helped a guy on a goat hunt last year in a general tag. And 
you know, as we're looking for goats, we're finding lots and lots of elk to the point we're going to go back in there this year and kill a bunch. And what I found was that two mile thing. We passed up, I don't know how many hunters, two miles in. Now you'd have to backpack hunt this, but as an example, you know, once we got in there, the status quo elk spots didn't have elk. As we're climbing to kill goats, there's fucking elk everywhere, right? They're getting away from the pressure and the people and they're in the safety. So thinking about, like I said, outside the box and things like that are huge. Cause I'm not from Utah and I haven't hardly hunted it, but we found elk. I think we saw 18 bulls the first day hunting goats, but those elk are there for, for safety. They're getting away from people and getting away from the pressure and they're there. That's a Utah general tag. Um, you have to put some effort into it, but I, I mean, Going out and once you're seeing them, your confidence level, you know, gets up. And even if you start missing them, at least you know you're going to find them again. Like, I got the shortest, I shoot a reeker. I got the shortest term memory known to man. I'm going to miss shit. It happens. But I know I can get back on them. And then that'll be an important part of it, too, knowing that you can, you know, get right back on L. So. I would add to that, you know, you mentioned your, your wife getting mad at you. And it probably has something to do with the amount of time that you spend away from the family. And you got to be super intentional in life, man. When I started having kids, <clears throat> made the decision, like all these hobbies, snowboarding and mountain biking and fishing and, and climbing and camping all over the place, I narrowed it all the way down to just hunting because I knew that's that's what I had capacity for if I was going to hold up my responsibility in the house and, and be there for my wife and kids. And so, um, like Dirk says, we go on multiple trips a year. We're going to go camping. Well, it just happens to be in a spot I'm scouting for. And but uh yeah look at your life look at if there, if there are things that are taken away from your family time that don't hold a high priority in your life maybe those are things you need to look at carving out so that you can be better in the woods okay aaron what broadhead do you want to use on elk so a fixed blade broadhead is going to be the, the the primary broadhead you're going to probably want to use on elk but to to answer your questions one by one is first one i think is how quick do i shoot up a target I'd say on average, if you get a matrix target, four years, um, Reinhardt 18 and one, two years, probably, um, you know, two distance, you should be able to shoot fixed blade broadheads out to 60 yards and get them to hit with your field tips. I, that was one of your questions, yeah. correct? Um, as far as out of, you know, variance, those questions after that are extremely debatable. In my opinion, zero variance between field tips and broadheads. They should hit the, out to 60. Wind drag is a bitch after that. Um, as far as coming off a center shot, um, again, if you've tuned your arrow to your bow, you're not going to have to do that, um, you know, within reason. Uh, but I would say I wouldn't bump my arrow rest to the left or to the right chasing uh, your fletched or, or, or your, you know, non-broadheads more than a sixteenth of an inch. Um, you know, after that, it's a, a serious tuning issue, not a tweaking issue. Um, that takes time to learn all that. That's easy to say, but most of the problem is, is people tune their bow to the arrow. You want to turn your arrow to the bow. Uh, and most, most shops don't do that. Most people don't do that. And, and then when you start tuning your arrow to your bow, uh, like my wife, we bear shaft her arrow out to 40 yards. I was shooting bear shafts out to 60. That's tuning your arrow to the bow. And there is no variance if you're able to, to do that. that. That's my own personal opinion though. But you guys might vary. And I like to shoot, I shoot broadheads probably a lot more than most people. I got broadhead screwed on for spring bear April 15th. And so I'm just about done bear hunting. I got a couple months. I'll probably slap some fill points on to do tack and get ready for that. But I'm still, you know what I mean? I don't like waiting until the week before elk season to mess with broadheads at all. Um, and I'm, since we're here, I'm fixed for life on 
I just shoot fixed heads. Uh, they just, they expose too much. They keep you honest. I like them, so. There's a book of archery of your own book, right? You're writing your own chapters. You're asking personal preference questions a lot. Like let off, it doesn't fucking matter what I like. It matters what you like and you need to find that out. I like lower let off personally, but that might suck you through the peep site. So you gotta find out. It doesn't matter if I like pink underwear and golden boots. If you don't like them, don't wear them, right? You gotta figure out what's best for you because everybody's like something a little bit different. And I definitely would find out what, what you like within reason and meaning don't shoot anything illegal, right? You can't shoot 90% let off, but, but truly it is, it is totally up to you. The same thing like fixed blades, you haven't shot a, and you can't argue a fixed blade's a better bet. Um, you know, so fixed blades for elk. After that, a lot of it's gonna be personal preference, but I'll, I'll help you after this, um, just so we don't take up too much time with any tuning question you have. All right, guys. Oh, we got one more? All right, we'll wrap it up here. We're, we're driving in from the East Coast, and every time we hunted Montana, we get dropped into a camp. Um, this year, I have discovered some road access that I did not know was there in my e-scouting. And so I'm going to plan on getting here about three to four days early before, before the hunt, just to get acclimated and yeah. usually spin it fishing or whatever, but I want to try it hunting this year. There may or may not be someone in that camp before we get there. Mm -hmm. um, so how would you spend those two to four days? Would you be looking at scouting the area that I'm, I will be hunting? wild hunting or would you go to a whole different area because I'm going to be stuck in this one spot. Is this archery or... Are you paying to be dropped off? What are you paying to be dropped off? Uh, $1,500. You pay $1,500 to get dropped off where you could drive yourself? I know. Did not know until after it was booked. Oh, okay. I'll be interested in your guys' opinion on this. Drop camps in uh, areas that have a pre-setup uh, camp is not a, a good idea in my opinion a drop camp with your own camp in a area that hasn't been piss pounded is a lot better idea for me personally because you don't know i you know the things that happen with the last two days of a camp for people in a drop camp you don't know if they're winging arrows screaming bugles being dummies because they're leaving anyway you, you don't know and that area has been piss pounded and it's going to be up to you to get far enough away which be could be quite some distance to where you can pay that same outfitter to drop you off at your own camp. And I have found that to be a lot more successful. That might be an option you might wanna do. They can drop you off super early. You're not going to that drop camp. They're gonna make say, I'll pay you the same amount of money. They're not using their gear. And then you might have to buy a, a tent and a sleeping bag or something. But I mean, you're gonna be um, in an area that hasn't been you know, piss pounded. That might be something you wanna look at you know, doing, to answer your question, I, I don't, I've never been forced with that, so I'm, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's a 2,500 mile ride, so getting out and trying to get everything set up, you know, just didn't want to spend the hunting time, but now that we know we have some access, we're gonna- You, you might want to look where they're pushing those elk too from the drive-in access, if you can, you know, you may be able to hunt off the road and kill something that drop camp's pushing so them too. So it's been working out for you, it's been good. I like what Aaron's saying though, like, I'd rather pay an outfitter 150 bucks a horse to help me pack my elk out. But I certainly don't like being dropped off by anybody or married or committed. I'm a very non-committal elk hunter. I want to be able to have mobility, whether he was getting my, like Dirk is crazy non-committed elk hunter. He'll drive 40, 50 miles at night and change camps. 
Um, but to be stuck in one place, absolutely not. No, thank you. Especially in this state, Colorado, I can't believe how many emails and messages I get from guys who pay an outfitter to drop them off. And guess what? They're stuck there and they can't find elk and they're there for 10 days. That was a sweet vacation. You know what I mean? So. I'll venture out. Are you driving in from Montana and hunting Idaho, or Idaho and Mon hunt Montana? Um, hunting in Montana. Gotcha. Um, yeah, that's a unique situation because he's kind of screwing you since you can drive in there, um, you know, to a certain degree. Is it a four-wheeler drive or a truck drive? Uh, it's road. It's a vehicle access. Yeah, I. I mean, I I wouldn't bank on driving being able to drive. That might be a deactivated road in an old map. I have a hard time believing that there's that many elk uh, and you're not running into people driving in there if you've hunted that before. But Yeah, we've only seen two guys. Yeah, that might be a deactivated road, which happens pretty Right, pretty or sometimes we'll they have, find out. they'll yeah, have a seasonal road closure, you know. Yeah. Uh, go find out if it's deactivated and uh, expand. If you're not expanding on your area year after year, I mean, that's unfortunate. If, it, if, it, if it's seasonally deactivated, that is a very good place to kill elk hiking on that road, or it's been my experience. That I, oh, yeah walking up and down the road bugling. Um, those elk feel comfortable in there. You know, the pressure's getting taken away and that drop camp's probably pushing them there, you know, as well. So hiking up and down that road, getting acclimated and killing elk off that road. And you're not being an asshole. You're not driving right to the camp and blowing yeah, out there. Yeah, you can't get, you know, the road is like three and a half miles from that camp. And you can, <clears throat> you can contact, contact the National Forest and ask for their uh, road management plan there and you can see what roads are, are drivable so and which ones are not. On the, on I wouldn't go on it. I'd contact the local local national forest because that stuff changes every year. There's a lot of stuff in both those packs, but neither one had a bog roller wet wipes. Yeah, oh, they're, I didn't empty them. There's, oh. uh, they're in there. Actually, I was, that was one of the things I was gonna talk about in, in the heavy pack. I got wet wipes and toilet paper. In the other one, I got toilet paper. I'm a wet wipe guy, so I always pack them in, but they're heavy, so. Dude wipes, uh, what do you prefer? Man, we've got, well, Shield sent us a pile of them, so we preferred those because they were free. And then I've got, <laughs> during COVID, yeah, dude wipes and boogie wipes because nobody Googled boogie wipes on Amazon. They were bugling wet wipes with COVID happened. So I bought like cases of boogie wipes, which is, it's a wet wipe for boogers for kids. So I've got a bunch of those, but yeah, it worked, right? Everybody's buying toilet paper. <laughs> Had to think outside the box, but go ahead. You want to close it up? Yeah, guys, just, uh, so day three tomorrow, we're headed to the gym and we're doing some nutrition. We're doing some working out, but we're going to also dive in. We're going to do some chalk talk. We're going to break down some elk hunts live that we've been on before and go through and you guys can ask questions and we can kind of show you what we did, why we did it. And uh, it's going to be cool. So get some sleep and then uh, we start tomorrow at 7 a.m. So don't stay out too late.